When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. High Theory Podcast is a proud member of the Humanities Podcast Network. It therefore gives us great pleasure to invite you to the 2022 Humanities Podcast Network Symposium on podcasting as knowledge sharing and creation. Like last year, we will have three days of conversations on all things podcast from October 20th to 22nd. Please visit the network website at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org to find more details and for the link to register for this free and virtual event. What follows is an edited version of the live recording of an event we held to launch Finding Your Purpose a workbook developed by Hannah Alpert Abrams for justice-oriented scholars in and outside academia. Hello, and welcome to this event. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We, the High Theory Podcast, are extremely excited and proud to launch Hannah Alpert Abrams' workbook, Finding Your Purpose, a Higher Calling Workbook for justice-oriented scholars in an unjust world. And if you think that's a long title, you will see why the workbook merits each and every word. Hannah is a new friend of mine. And what Hannah, I value Hannah's friendship so much uh, because she is that one person who is outside academia who I can complain about academia to. And that has been immensely helpful in sustaining my mental health. Hannah Albert Abrams is a program specialist at the NEH Office of Digital Humanities. She's co-founder of the Visionary Futures Collective, a group where is the first uh, place where I met her. She is creator of the job market support network and postdoctoral laborers. She has a PhD in comparative literature. Her publications include, uh, are at Digital Humanities Quarterly, Journal for Critical Library and Information Science, and many other venues. Her hobbies include, but not limited to kayaking, and her kitten include, and I think is limited to at this point, Vera, who is very sweet. And maybe she'll make an appearance today. So Hannah, thank you so much for this workbook. Thank you for giving us this workbook. Thank you for agreeing to uh, have this workbook launched by High Theory. We are really appreciative and really proud of you. And please take it away. I'm Sharon, I thank you for that. 
introduction, I'm going to thank you so much to you and to everyone who's here today and to anyone who might be listening in the future, <laughs> possibly to the recorded audio from this conversation. Before I begin, because I am a federal employee, I have to mention that I am not representing my workplace <laughs> in this conversation and nothing I say represents the NEH today. Sharonik asked me to speak for 10 minutes, and I thought I would just take the 10 minutes and name every single person <laughs> who I'm grateful for and who helped me develop this project. But then I realized that that was a really poor use of your time, <laughs> although would be very meaningful to me. So I am, I am not going to do that. I am going to reiterate one thank you to Sharonik and to the High Theory Podcast for hosting this event and for all the work and the beautiful artwork and everything involved in putting this together. And then to the four participants in this event, to Matt, Carter, Quinn, and Sonia, I am so grateful for your generosity in being here today um, and for all of your friendship. It's great to have so many of my favorite people in one space. I feel really lucky. It was really hard to figure out what to say to launch this event, to be honest. Um, I really struggled with it because I feel like this is the rare moment where the book is a series of questions, <laughs> um, not answers, and I now feel like I have to give you an answer, um, and that was kind of difficult, so I'm not going to do that, um, but I thought I will tell you a little bit about what the workbook is. It's been online for like two hours, but you may not have seen it yet, um, and what it does or aims to do. So the book is Finding Your Purpose, a higher calling workbook for justice-oriented scholars in an unjust world. The book is for anyone who entered higher education or participates in higher education or has some relationship to academia because they thought that it would be a space in which they could do good things, right? Um, but then who found that at various times sort of difficult to to accomplish um, because of the many different factors that we face as we navigate academia. The book, I wrote the book mostly because um, I needed it. <laughs> Going through my PhD program, working in several postdocs, and making the transition to um, what I still call an alt-ac um, position has been what was complicated, right? It was difficult. And I just wish someone would tell me, you know, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? Like, what, what do I want? What, what are my values? Am I living, am I doing able to, like, are these compromises good compromises to make and things like that? So I wanted, um, I needed a resource. And so um, I wrote one. There were a couple of sort of key influences. The Visionary Futures Collective with Sharon named um, really set in motion the idea of working together to understand our values and understand our purpose as a collective purpose, um, but also to understand that our individual work is collective work, right? Um, I also was influenced by my mentor, John Butman, who emailed me and was like, you really angry on Twitter. Have you ever written a book about that? Um, and I was like, you know, maybe I should. That's a great idea, John. So I am really grateful for that. Adrian Marie Brown's writing um, 
I'm not even going to pretend that this is more than an effort to replicate what she accomplishes. I, you know, this is one of those rare moments where you don't have to be innovative. You can just say, I'm taking what someone else has done and doing my best to build on it. And then Gabrielle Foreman's writing on, on mission has been really foundational to this work. Finally, the project, you know, the questions that I ask in this book, I tested all of them out on the interns <laughs> that I work with at the NH. Um, so I'm going to name them. So Sarah, Sasha, Leah, Demetra, Bria, Alyssa, um, and our current interns, Issa and Alexis, um, served as test subjects for many of the exercises in this book. Um, and they're really good sorts about it. And taught me a lot. Okay, so that's a little bit of background about the book. Um, the project has five sections. Um, we have lineage, community, pleasure, values, and purpose. I'm, I'm looking, I'm holding a copy, but this is like my draft copy because I've, I'm like halfway done printing the real thing. But each section is divided, has exercises and activities that range from guided questions and surveys to um, meditations and rituals that can be helpful. And that I hope will help all of us sort of answer these questions together. The, a little bit about the production of the book. So the book, I really wanted the project to replicate the values that I developed or came to understand through doing all the exercises. I have done every exercise but one. Um, and I will tell you which one it is if you want to know. There's one I just haven't been able to bring myself to do. Um, but I really wanted those values to be reflected in the project. And so project is free. It's online. It's in a bunch of different digital formats, PDFs, printable PDFs, and an EPUB, which was really hard to make. Um, but I'm also producing a copy on my Resograph machine, which is like a silk screen for bookmaking or zine making. And I, I haven't finished it, but I do have it's actually gonna be really pretty. Um, this is the a cover that I printed. So working on it. But if anyone pre-ordered a copy, um, that's what you're going to get. So hoping to get that done soon and send those out. And I also at this point have to say that the Resograph is a collaboration with my brother Saul, who is a technical genius. And I could not have done any of this without him like breaking open the machine and making it work for me. So um, really grateful for that. So that's sort of everything I wanted to say. Sharonik asked me to talk about purpose. And like I said at the beginning, I was like, I am not going to give answers. I am supposed to be here asking questions. So I just want to say that the last couple of years have been very difficult. The last many years of academic life have been a struggle for many of us. And it can be hard to remember that the work that we're doing is good and is really important and is can be really powerful, um, however we're doing it. And so I really hope that this project can help us see that um, as individuals and find our ways through that as individuals, but also I hope that the four speakers today um, can help us figure out how to do that as well. Thank you so much, Hannah. So while you rest a little, let me go to our first speaker for the day, which is Matt Cohen. Matt Cohen is professor of English and affiliate faculty in Native American studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's also the past president of the UNL chapter of the American Association of University Professors and runs a tiny record label with his brother, Dan, called Western Boys Entertainment. And to Matt, my question is, 
academic lineages so often are used for the purposes of gatekeeping, can we reimagine the concept of lineage in democratic and equitable ways? Thanks, Ronik. Um, that's a great question. I really like that word reimagine. You know, I after reading Hannah's workbook chapter on this, I was reminded of something that the poet Walt Whitman wrote in the beginning of the poem we now call Song of Myself. He writes at one point, creeds and schools in abeyance, retiring back a while sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard, nature without check, with original energy. And I think that because, you know, I think as you suggest, the lineage is always a function, partly of imagination. And it's good to remember that as we feel the pull of belonging from so many directions, uh, communities, people, institutions. And I, I really liked um, the assertion in the book right at the start, right? That that which we value, a, you know, that which we understand even to be scholarly, to be a contribution has to be thought outside the institution. So that's crucial to do that all the time, but it's, but it's really hard to do that as well. And it becomes an intensely individual thing once you start doing that. Um, the, the guides that you need, you will find in places that, that are they're not on the syllabus. So I really like uh, Hannah's uh, emphasis on process and on people in the workbook, right? Like if you were to do, if you were to do, uh, you know, your scholarly genealogy in the usual manner, it'd be like, you know, the Frankfurt School. And, you know what I mean? It'd be like, a, it'd be like a series of institutions or crypto institutions. And she's just like, here are all these wonderful people, right? It's just a profoundly wide embrace of, of influence um, in thinking less about what one does intellectually, more like how, how does one go about it. And uh, to me, a lot of that envisioning comes from my kith and kin, from communities I've been involved in. Um, and, and Hannah and I share an example of that. I mean, we're we're in a lineage, as she observes in the workbook, but appropriately, it's not just reciprocal, right? It's not just along a single connection via her intellectual work and, and, and employment, since we both went to the same college too, right? And that environment has been famously or for some people, notoriously, right, uh, impactful injustice work of all kinds. Not that it hasn't produced its assholes, names redacted, but uh, that process-oriented approach, you know, uh, in the workbook, and, and it's process-oriented in the sense that it's describing a process, but also that it's making you do it, right, that, that, that you have activities that you can do. It, it's, it's challenging, I think, in the case of lineage. To, to take a processual kind of approach. But I don't know. I feel like we, we there's partly that approach is a sign of a shared uh, experience within um, a community that I at least found compared to my rural Southern upbringing, unusually capable of focusing on people, relationships, care, uh, and ideas uh, as compared to sorting people by hierarchies or focusing on job preparation or creating apostles for some ancient intellectual creed. I guess the, the last thing I wanted to say is that that you, you, you mentioned gatekeeping, right, as like one of the things that lineages sort of are designed to do. And I think the exercise in, in the workbook of kind of trying to think this through, but also like, like who are the people that have, to whom I cleave, 
who, who have shaped me to, to with whom I want a reciprocal and ongoing relationship. And, and having to think about like, what are the key sort of lines of influence? Like what are the, what are the values that, that have shaped those things? I think that that really helps kind of on the flip side with the practice of trying to identify in ourselves, like what is the feeling of wanting to gatekeep? Like what, like when you get that feeling, what is that feeling in you? Do you sort of like tingle? Like, do you, do you blush? Do you like, what is it that, that, that makes you do that? So you can reflect on that and what it's attaching to. And um, there's certainly outward things we can do too, of course, to model lineage as a matter of ethical growth and a nurturing orientation. I think we try, like, I mean, I try to just keep in mind, you know, that everyone, everyone's participating in more than one lineage, right? And you can, you can appeal to that. You can appeal to the kinds of, of sort of, of nurturing and caring influence, even in, uh, in, a, in a pretty strictly institutional academic conversation. Um, and sometimes you can drag folks out of, the, out of the, the mechanistic, hierarchical, I have, you know, the laying on of hands from, um, from the scholars of the past. Um, and just re- I, it was just really a challenging, but also a really kind of deeply comforting experience to read this book. Thank you so much, Matt. That was a wonderful uh, opening into the possibilities um, that this workbook signal. And you talked about communities and imagining communities in ways that we don't always, we're not always prescribed. So uh, let me go to Carter because they are talking about communities. Uh, Carter Hogan is a bluegrass musician writer and gardener based in Austin, Texas. They earned their MFA in literary arts from Brown University. They toured nationally with queer musicians. Their first book of short stories comes out next spring. And they finally learned how to grow tomatoes the neighbors approve of. That's, that in itself is an astounding accomplishment. Congratulations, Scarter. My question to you is, how do we protect our communities or even the senses of community that we depend on from the worst of the neoliberal university system. <laughs> okay, yeah, wow. Thank, first of all, thank you so much, Saronic, for those those words of approval for my tomato gardening, because that is <laughs> truly just the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, I'm currently trying to understand how to grow ground cherries, which is a whole new game. So if you're interested, we can talk about that later. But um, okay, yeah, so I'm also gonna come to this question as someone who was only very briefly in the academy and has since chosen to live my life quite outside of it in almost every way. So I'll, I'll like come to it from a from an artist perspective primarily. But um, I am someone who's been through the academic system. Uh, I like I got my MFA and I was a very good boy and I like did all the things. And it's interesting to think about the question of community next to the question of the future of the academy, especially as someone who has a very contentious relationship with the idea of community. I grew up in I grew up very Catholic in a in a in a religious institution that's like very uh, it was leveraged very often in my life to be abusive and to be controlling. And so, my first introduction to community is one of control, one of exceeding amounts of gatekeeping, one of uh, homogenization, whiteness, uh, all kinds of. I, I, I grew up in a in a very white community in rural Oregon, also. So that's that's like all these things go into how I think of community. And so co- the question of community in my life has been very challenging, actually, because it has been a source of a lot of pain and a lot of neglect. I think that's also been true of my experiences in university spaces because they're sort of designed 
to work in the same ways, at least how I've found them to be. And there are absolutely individuals who are exceptions to that, who try and work within and around and outside of these systems. Um, I think, uh, Matt, you said that really eloquently, like this drive to to move around and outside, but it's very hard to do that. I think that I've, I've been trying to reread um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's work just again and again, because I, I have never really found anyone who so closely speaks to the only way I can safely consider community, which is non-human primarily. I think for me, human stuff, too hard. So we just we just look outside of that. We just look at moss. Let's look at some moss and like look at some 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 mushrooms and some plants and and trying to consider like how how organization uh, can be fruitful, how it can also be controlling and and trying to think of ways in which we can grow around those shapes, those um, those like grid like shapes that that we impose upon ourselves a lot. It's something I also feel really relieved about with this book, Hannah, is that you in in the community chapter, I could feel my like panic rising. And there's this question of place. Like when you think of community, what is the place that you envision being in? And how does it smell and how does it sound? And what what makes it a place of community? And what could what could help it be a more accessible place of community? I think focusing on place is so interesting in this question of how to protect community and how to strengthen community, because it always does come down to the details of uh, like that's really like how mushrooms speak to each other and, and and how good the coffee is at the coffee shop you're at and how dim the lighting is, but that adds something in those like crappy little basements where you're, you're gathering to talk about being trans or, or getting on these virtual these virtual spaces where, where you're meeting with other kids who have abusive parents and you're learning there. Like there's like a lot of specific things about place that come into it that ease a lot of that pain, I think, for me. And I think that focus in this chapter is really powerful, especially when we when we ask bigger questions of like, how do we how do we grow our communities? How do we just how do we grow our own practices within them? Hannah asked that question in this book, like how how do we want to um, continue to strengthen our ability to function in community? That's a really big question and a really hard one to ask of oneself unless you turn back to the place and to the people who gather in the place and 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 think and think specifically about what what makes it what makes it possible for us to be there what keeps others out i think those tangible questions are really how we can start asking these bigger questions of institutions what what allows us to gather there what brings us there what keeps others out what keeps us out what makes us turn away and what makes us turn back again in our body and in others' bodies and in our connections to others. I think those very specific points are really, really strengthened in this book. And I, I feel like excited to continue to tackle them as I go through this workbook again and again. Thank you so much, Carter. Those questions really are yardsticks. And and I really liked your, um, I mean, you mentioned the word panic, but uh, but I think what, what you talked about was this kind of opposition between panic and pleasure, which at least in my own relationship with academia is how I define my relationship. I'm sometimes panicked by them, sometimes I derive pleasure. Speaking of pleasure, as you might imagine, that was my very heavy-handed segue. Quinn Dombrowski is going to speak on pleasure. And Quinn Dombrowski is an academic technology specialist at Stanford University. Among Quinn's many playful projects are a textile makerspace, a project management role-playing game, Data Sitters Club, a feminist digital humanities pedagogy and research group focused on the Babysitters Club, and Animal Crossing New DH, an academic talk series held in Animal Crossing. Quinn, my question to you is, finding pleasure in academic work, is it an act of recovery? 
or is it an act of generation or both? And in cases where the first fails, how can the second succeed? Thank you so much for that question. Um, I'll, I'll admit that my, my background is um, ultimately from a very different um, angle of the humanities. I got degrees strangely in uh, medieval uh, Slavic linguistics and library science. And um, I've, I've always leaned very much towards the like practical and the applied. Um, so as you can see, the manifestation here is um, the, the realization this morning that my role in this essentially is like discussed as Bacchus. So I, I and uh, prepared culinary options to sort of, you know, embody that that experience. But but relatedly, I, I will confess that I actually messaged Hannah to ask what the question meant, because I wasn't really sure about like recovery and generation. Um, uh, this is this is a bit outside my, my usual wheelhouse, but I, I think I think I get the idea. And I, I think I think it's complicated, as as with many things. Um, on on one hand, you know, there are things that you can do um, within the sort of different facets of pleasure that Hannah discusses in this this workbook: um, protecting your mind, body, care for community, feeling good, working, and and doing good work that can sort of bring pleasure back into you know work that has lost its spark. You know, for for various reasons, the context of the neoliberal university. You know, but there's there's also opportunity potentially um, to proactively seek these things out and and through those experiences um, get idea for for new academic work that, that you can do you know I'm, I'm reminded of you know an experience I had taking my children to a, a musical of uh, some people had turned a, a, a book that was based on sort of like interacting with shapes and like a paper book like into a musical with like song and dances and the idea that like you know, you can always do it again. You can always start over. You can always, you know, try again and do something new. And, and that idea of starting over sort of ended up inspiring the, the digital humanities role-playing game I created basically to give people an experience of, of living through a year in the life of a digital humanities project, embodying a character in a different role than their own um, and, and seeing what life actually is like, um, you know, trying to build something in, in, in those roles. You know, and that said, I mean, I, I think, you know, taking pleasure in your work and sort of embracing pleasure as, as a principle in your work and, and sort of centering joy can do can do so much more than than either recovery or generation. Um, like the fact is that like it is inherently a good thing. You know, it, it, it's it's okay to like things and to like them unironically. And it's okay to like the wrong things um, unironically. And, and that's, I, I think one of the things that, that academia does to people is that it sort of like, you know, sets up, I don't know, be it like sort of some like facsimile of their advisor or like that other professor in the department that like they're sort of afraid of, like kind of like as a police figure in their own head. Um, and this, this ends up governing people's actions, you know, even beyond sort of like the academic context. Um, you know, like how comfortable are you like strolling into a Taco Bell and like getting a chalupa and like eating it and like savoring it for all it's worth like how comfortable are you like I, I don't know so like I, I I enjoy watching Sailor Moon I I play uh video games I have a whole project based on the babysitters club um you know a set of books like maligned by librarians then even as it's sort of like managed to become uh you know a classic now like embrace the things that you love um, and, and, and don't sort of like let the police voice in your head um, take away from that. And, and sometimes we can bring that work, um, those, those sort of joys and, and, and those loves like into our academic work. There's, there are ways to sort of incorporate it 
um, you know, in some cases more explicitly, but even if that, that doesn't pass muster with, you know, the revisions on your dissertation, you can do it implicitly. You can, you know, sort of include references and in talks. Um, you know, the last year I, I ended up trying to analogize collaboration in digital humanities with like Captain Planet um, and sort of like with people's powers combined and rings shooting, you know, uh, lasers into space. It's actually more complicated than that. But like, so things that you love to wear or like go find something online that is really comfy. You know, I, I, Hannah's workbook, um, you know, does a really beautiful and I think very tactful job of giving examples kind of in each of her four categories. Um, they're very socially acceptable, but I, I would like to suggest what I, what I think is a very clear subtext here that you can also put less socially acceptable things in there instead of like get dressed up for work, like feel very cozy in like your beat up old sweatpants and favorite t-shirt, you know, under, under feel good working, um, under do good work, like, you know, dive in like full force with like, you know, the things that you loved as a child and actually still love, even if you would never bring it up in like, you know, a social hour in your department. Um, you know, in terms of, of care for community, like, you know, our, our communities embrace sort of more people than, than we sort of see in general academic spaces. It is a joy if, if that's your thing and like, go, go do it. Um, and, and protecting your mind body, like trashy TV is excellent, you know, especially when you're scanning and OCRing books, uh, let me tell you, or, or doing other things like that. Like, you know, you don't have to go tell everyone about your, your favorite, you know, trashy TV shows, like if that wouldn't be comfortable, but like odds are someday you'll meet some other people who are into the same things you are and, and being able to sort of build those bridges between, you know, loving like RuPaul's Drag Race, um, you know, across the world, um, you know, and, and, you know, the fact that people are existing in these same spaces. Um, it's, it's, it's wonderful um, and not something that you should shy away from um, kind of regardless of, of what you're afraid of, what people might think. Thank you so much, Quinn. I think it's a great lesson for all of us to take home, which is to remember to be honest. It's really, it's, it's so healthy, to be honest, and we forget all the time. But thank you, Quinn, for reminding us. Our final interlocutor with Hannah's work is Sonia. Sonia Donaldson is Associate Professor of English. She's currently developing a digital humanities project, Singing the Nation into Being, Anthems and the Politics of Black Performance, which focuses on James Weldon Johnson and J. Rosamond Johnson's Lift Every Voice and Sing, also known as the Black National Anthem. A former technology journalist, Sonia's academic research focuses on African diasporic literatures and digital humanities. And my question to Sonia, who will speak on values, my question is, can our values evolve with our relationships with our institutions and the demands that they make on us? How do we make compromises and how do we stand our ground? So those are, <laughs> those are huge <laughs> questions. <laughs> And thank you for, thank you for first that wonderful introduction. Thank you, Hannah, for inviting me into this space. And thank you for, for inviting me to share this launch with you. I've been kind of rocking with Hannah and the VFC since uh, 2020 when I was just sort of kind of lost <laughs> um, and was in search of community as we became sort of disconnected physically from each other. Um, during this pandemic. And I'm so grateful that I found VFC and um, have been able to engage in some really wonderful conversations that for me have really forced me to sort of rethink my identity in the academy and to actually move in a new direction, new direction and move towards things 
rather than sort of like be in the space that I was um, before. I sort of feel like I got the, uh, not, not to sort of, you know, kind of um, cloud over the previous three folks, but I feel like I got a really hard question. <laughs> I feel like that kid in class is like, you asked multiple choices and now I have to write an essay um, for this. But um, for me, um, so thank you, Sharonic. Really great questions. And again, right, like Hannah, I don't come with answers. I come with questions. Um, I come bearing gifts of questions to you. Um, but the, the questions really uh, kind of, you know, force you to think a little bit um, deeply. I, you know, was sort of like, oh, I, I know myself and I know my values and I know sort of my relationship to this space. But the reality is when we think about values, we also have to think about culture and academic culture and institutional culture and the way that those cultures um, of being and knowing and operating create context for us to consider whether our core values align with the institution's articulated core values. And I say articulated core values, right? Those two sentences typically on the website that says we are really invested in these things. But I think for some of us, we might find that our values are in conflict with the institutional values as their practice. And I think that's part of the thing that sort of brought us collectively to VFC, a group of probably some would call malcontents or complainers, if we're thinking about Sarah Ahmed's work on complaint, which has really been generative for me in, in thinking about um, ideas about value. And what I love about this workbook, Hannah, is that it forces a kind of honesty onto you. And so um, I did the assessment exercises and I really wanted to have a high score, especially around values. <laughs> but what I found was that the, that one question about scholarship, I ha actually had to sort of like decouple that scholarship question from the rest of the, the chart, right, about work. Because even though, right, scholarship is part of the work that we do, I find that the scholarly work that I try really hard to produce and what I aim for, are, um, that work is often sort of not valued institutionally and may not even align with institutional practices, right? And so thinking about the way that uh, the work that I do centers community um, centers a particular kind of ethics, right, of care, of consideration, of collaboration, um, of openness. Um, and I don't know whether that um, way of doing scholarship actually is compatible with many institutions or the academy writ large. Um, what I'm hoping is that having these conversations and starting uh, actually moves us towards a kind of shift. But at the same time, I don't, I'm not necessarily invested in sort of, I'm managing my expectations as a friend would say about what is possible um, in the academy. And I think that that for me has been a really healthy, healthy thing to sort of manage, um, to manage that and to shift 
um, and focus on different things. So for me, the shift um, was to focus on building relationships with students, focus on thinking about being in conversations with them about futures and possibilities and sort of working through ideas. And again, I don't necessarily think that that's something that works uh, for everyone or that aligns with everyone. And in thinking about uh, your question on uh, compromises, that was actually a really difficult thing, again, to confront, right? Because we do make compromises to be in the space. We do, for me, I think about like my pre-tenure self and the way that, <clears throat> sorry, institutional culture um, silences, right? Silences faculty at a really important moment when those are the voices that actually need to be heard in the academy, right? And I think for me, coming from a profession of a journalist where, you know, you're trained to be curious, to ask questions, why are things the way that they are? Um, I was trained to ask the, the difficult questions, right? And to notice things, to be curious and to complain. <laughs> and I'm a fan of complaining. And so, um, you know, in thinking about um, Sarah Ahmed's work on complaint, where she talks about the way that complaint actually makes things visible. And once they become visible, they cannot be unseen, right? So I think about that in relation to values, right? As being that person and whether you're considered a problem child or there are other names attached to it, that it's really, for me, that is part of like my value system, right? To say, I noticed this thing that exists that is not right, that we in the academy, there's also a culture, not, a, not just of silencing, but also of sort of pretending, right? Like these are not the droids you want, um, of pretending that the thing that is happening isn't really happening you know, a kind of like three card Monty with, um, with certain uh, situations. And so I think of this idea of complaint as really valuable, as a valuable tool in thinking about um, our sense of responsibility and our sense of what we need to do and the action we need to take, whether it is to invest in sort of remaking, rebuilding, or breaking. I'm going to stop there. Thank you so much, Sonia. If it was a hard question, it didn't feel like it in your answer at all. So we have 10 minutes for a brief roundtable. Just to kind of get things started, I would ask Hannah, Matt, uh, Quinn, Carter, and Sonia, ideally speaking, let's say, how do you see this workbook being used? By whom? In what way? I feel like I, start? I, oh, oh. Should I start? I don't know. <laughs> it's a round table. It's egalitarian. <laughs> I'm going to assign it. I mean, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assign it in my, my DH project management and ethical collaboration for humanists class. And yeah, I, I, I plan to keep copies in my office and hand them out liberally uh, to as many grad students who, who wander by as possible. I mean, I, I think this is, this is the first workbook I've seen that just like, tackles these issues you know in a, in a very direct and relatable way for for people in the academy you know not not only grad students too but you know mid-career people who are feeling stuck yeah I mean basically I, I plan to take over the the printer 
at work one of these days and just make a giant stash and then and then hand it out wherever I go, but but also assign it as a textbook. So that's that's my plan anyhow. Could I ask Hannah which exercise she hasn't done? Oh yeah, yeah. And why? Uh, yeah, I haven't done the ritual where you burn the threads, which is on page 52. Um, because I, it, it were, my therapist assigned it to me actually. Um, and I put it in here because I thought that they had some good ideas <laughs> when they gave it to me, but I just, I think it's easy for me. It's the kind of activity that it's hard for me to make space for in my life, right. To actually sit down with yourself and do a ritual and sort of believe in it and, manifest it I yeah I haven't been able to do that one yet but I've done all the other I think a lot of the book was aspirational and so I thought it was like nice to have something that's so aspirational I can't do it <laughs> well wait Hannah can I ask you my question which is amongst many who do you see using this book and how yeah I I think I mean I think that what what would be most moving for me is if people used it together you know, I think it's such an individual thing. I did it by myself. I haven't done any of this with anyone else. You know, it's very personal. But the idea that you could come together with one other person or with multiple other people and ask these questions of each other is like also very aspirational for me. It seems really like it could be really nice. Um, and I love the idea that it could serve many different people, but I definitely see grad students, you know, as a primary audience for it. Um, I hope that I, I just know I was just asking these questions all the time when I was a grad student. <laughs> so I hope that this can help with that. I would speak though also for the kind, not just the work that this can do at the individual level, for folks who are farther along in the academy as a profession, but really for like, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask my parents to read this, you know, because I, I don't think they think much about the kinds of questions about what having to ask these kinds of questions reveals about the environment I'm working in, if that makes sense. So as a means of connecting, even if it's not them, like, asking themselves these questions, although that would be cool. But I, I think it would be it would be useful in that context as well. Absolutely. I think my parents are actually here. So <laughs> I don't know if they've read it yet, but we can ask them. I know this is not written with these people in mind, but I would feel so tickled if I could get some people I know in the tech world to read this. If there's like Man, that, that, that question of complaint that you brought up, Sonia, that is so powerful. It's so interesting to me. Like I also am like a very fervent believer in complaining. It's so important to complain because at least someone is naming something. I feel so interested in the idea of people who say so many things about synergy and teamwork to actually have to read this or even go through it together, Hannah, to like really like consider to really consider what it could mean actually to be doing work that may feel much less meaningless than the work other people do, but but is still a community, there's still people involved there. Like that's really interesting to me. How how could that whole culture shift if people were asking themselves questions like, how do we become a community in this space? Or like, how do we think of our lineage as people who are in the same room together? What are we drawing from? That is so interesting to me. Thank you, Carter. And thank you, 
everyone, Hannah, Matt, Sonia, Quinn, for joining us today and talking to us about finding your purpose. And thank you all of you uh, in the audience for giving your time uh, to celebrate this workbook. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Bye.